0: Welcome to another edition of Ticket Splitters, the Grassroots Midwest Podcast. My guest this week is Joe Haviman. Joe is a former member of the Michigan House of Representatives from Ottawa County. He's a three-term Republican lawmaker, and he chaired the powerful House Appropriations Committee during his third and final term, and was one of the legislature's conservative champions for criminal justice reform. Hoffman now serves as the director of government relations at Hope Network, a Michigan-based nonprofit that provides services and advocacy for individuals who suffer from physical, mental, and disability barriers. Health Helping them live their best, fullest lives. Welcome to the show, Joe. Thank you, Adrian. Good to be here. Yeah, I really appreciate you coming on. We, uh, we've had a pretty good run on ticket splitters, and I'm really excited to have you on the program. Um, you've had a lot of different experiences in politics. So I just want to start by uh, talking about your background a little bit before you got into politics. What did you do for a living
1: before you ran for office? Well, I, uh, I, I had been involved in local politics for mm-hmm. a number of years uh, at the city and the county level. But, uh, to bring home a paycheck, I was kind of in the construction industry. Yeah. I started off as a director of a nonprofit again, mm-hmm. um, uh, home builders association back in my local community, did that for 11 years and just had an absolute ball, uh, learned a lot, made tremendous relationships, uh, doing that. And then went to work for one of my members in the building trades mm-hmm. in the, on the commercial side and, uh. Handled business development and marketing for a commercial contractor. I did that for 10 years before running for the state.
0: Yeah, excellent. Um, So was there something that translated from the work that you were doing for the Home Builders Association or for that builder that made you want to run for the state legislature, or was it something else?
1: Well, I think I had always planned on or always had an interest in politics because of my local involvement as well. Uh, Always knew that that opportunity existed. And really waited for my kids to get a little older before my wife and I decided that now was the appropriate time.
0: Sure. Sure. That makes sense. Um, so you had pretty diverse experiences as a lawmaker. Um, you started in the legislative minority with a Democratic governor, Governor Granholm. Um, by the time you hit the constitutional term limit, you were chair the Appropriations Committee and served with a Republican governor, Rick Snyder. Um, you talk a little bit about the contrast in styles between those two and how they compare to our current governor.
1: Well, it uh, starting off in minority, you have a very short window of six years, certainly. So you want to get as much done and hit the ground running. But starting off in the minority as a freshman, I think is the uh, a pretty good scenario. Sure, you can't do a whole lot anyway, mm-hmm. and you're kind of pigeonholed as a freshman, also. Sure. So to do get both of those two years done at the same time was was a good way to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's more, Michigan was in such uh, a mess. Yeah. Uh, during the recession, mm-hmm. my last two years before Snyder started, or my first two years, excuse me, uh, that it really worked out well. We had a lot to work on when we took on majority. Sure. There was a lot of low hanging fruit. The budget was a mess. Uh, the, uh, there was no savings account. There was no rainy day fund left. No, nope. Uh, the budget process was a mess. It, it creeped into October to get the budget done mm-hmm. as you if, as you remember, I do, um, <laughs> So there was a lot to work on. Yeah. And we had, we found ourselves with a leadership team that really, uh, they'll admit today that we didn't know what we were doing. So we just did it. Right. And and it worked. Yeah. And we had a governor that I think would admit uh, also that coming in and not having held elected office before, he was uh, just sort of winging it as well. Yeah. Today we have a Governor with tremendous experience. Uh, she did fourteen years in the legislature can hit the ground running yeah. the difference is now there's been so many things that have been done mm-hmm. now we're tweaking there's been the we have a few of the big things like roads mm-hmm. and no fault uh that you know are immediate needs, but we don't have the immediate needs like we did in two thousand nine and ten. I mean that was a mess on our hands, and it was all about fix Michigan fix the mitten. Uh, you remember that campaign from oh, people, sure. people talking about that. So it's a it's a little bit different. You know, I give her the best. I, I think she's off to a, a fairly good start and uh, we're almost done. We better be done with the honeymoon period now uh, because we've got a lot of experienced people there in the Senate and in the governor's office. And now it's can you sustain the economic boom that we're in? And keep tweaking this economy so it keeps going. We need to fix the roads. Certainly, she has said that. She ran her campaign on that. Mm -hmm. But also, how do you start pulling out some of the bureaucratic costs and and uh, running things more efficiently because we know, I mean, it, Michigan's a cyclical economy and we're going to see a recession eventually.
0: Absolutely. Uh, we absolutely will. And, you know, you, you brought up um, one thing that's been sort of a hobby horse for me in terms of uh, issues that still need doing um, besides the roads, um, which is some of the uh, the efficiencies in government for for folks, particularly that work with the human services side of government. Um, they will admit that our IT systems are a mess. Um, We have a really hard time, you know, doing intake into the system, figuring out where people are in the system, what they've actually applied for and what they haven't. Um, And I've heard some horror stories um, just from folks who work in the Department of Health and Human Services um, about the delays that are caused by really shoddy IT
1: systems. Well, it's interesting because when I was working here, uh, my daughter, one of her first jobs, she started with the Department of Health and Human Services, working on the MISACWIS Oh boy, software. Program. Oh boy, <laughs> and she's not a computer person, but she had a she had a clerical job working on that, analyzing what uh, you know what should go into it. So last week I sent her an email saying, "Hey, we're scrapping the entire Mysakwis program mm-hmm. and starting from scratch." And yeah. she just uh, she couldn't believe all the work that's gone into that and what a waste it's been. Yeah. Now that's been five years, and and software changes and things like that. But uh, you're right. I mean, somebody's got to get. Their arms around the I.T. side of the state government.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I'm I'm hopeful about that. I mean, in addition to our governor, the um, the I.T. stuff is an area of expertise for our new lieutenant governor, Garland Gilchrist. Yes. Yeah. Um, so so hopefully that's something that this administration can wrap their arms around in a bipartisan fashion. I think there's bipartisan agreement that our I.T. systems are terrible right now. Um, and so that seems like an obvious
1: place for us well, to get some stuff done. It's interesting that it was uh, one of the strong suits for our former governor, too. Yeah. No, that's and, a and fair here point. Here we are, here we are eight yeah. years later still yeah. talking about it. Yeah, that's too bad.
0: Yeah. So I brought up earlier the, uh, uh, the term limits piece. Um, you obviously served your, uh, your full three terms in the House. Um, what's your opinion about the term limits uh, law and how, how that serves the public? Well, I don't think it serves the public.
1: Now, I'll say full disclosure, 20 years ago, I voted for it. Sure. I, and I voted for it because I believed under term limits, people would come here with the right motivation To say, you know what? It's not a full-time job. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be ever a full-time job. So let me go and do the right thing and not care about the consequences of keeping my job. Right. It didn't work. Yeah. It was a good experiment. Uh, In hindsight, I wish we had put a sunset on it that we could have evaluated it after a few terms of people cycling in and out. Now, on the positive side of term limits, I may have never served without term limits also. And I had a great experience, and I loved every minute of it. But I don't think it served the public well, because yeah. there we have not instilled that courage to say, I'm going to go and do what's right, and uh, the heck with the consequences, because mm-hmm. I have to go home anyway. Yeah. We used to talk about that in caucus. We used to, I used to say those things. I've heard others say them as... Guys, we all go home. Let's leave it all on the field. Don't mm-hmm. worry about that next election be, mm-hmm. because you're you're doing what's right for the people unfortunately it's it's transitioned into a very young legislature mm-hmm. I believe without the life experience sure. uh, without the work experience mm-hmm. uh to really know how life works. I see that with some of our legislators, and I saw it when I was there and It's transitioned into a system where what's my next position? Yeah. Instead of going home and finding a job and, you know, going back to my life, it's what's my next elected office. So I've got to be careful how I vote. Yeah. And I think the public has been disserved in both respects. And I tried to change it when I was here. Mm -hmm. I I was circulating a bill that would have gone from a total of fourteen years, Mm -hmm. six plus eight and define the way it is. Uh, to a total of 16 Mm -hmm. and you can use it however you want yeah well i never got a hearing of course nobody nobody seemed to have the intestinal fortitude to even take it up for a hearing Uh, i remember approaching um, the minority leader in the house and saying listen this has got to be a bipartisan thing you know we we need the unions on board we need the chambers on board both parties have to come together we need to work on this and and fix it Mm -hmm. his response was frankly you know if we do this It's going to mean a bigger turnout of Republicans against it. Mm -hmm. And, you you know, it's going to hurt the Democrats. Mm -hmm. So it was a partisan excuse not to to move forward, even though he knew it was broken too. Sure. So I do hear more talk about it. And uh, whether whether it can be done legislatively or put back to the people, voted to be put back to the people to, to take a second look at it, I don't know. It hasn't worked.
0: Yeah, I, I'm inclined to agree with you. The The issue is that you know, term limits are popular. Um, you know, we, we just had another poll that came out this year that shows pretty broad, even bipartisan support for term limits. They're supported even more by Republicans than they are by Democrats. Sure. Yeah. But, um, you know, broad majorities of both types of partisans um, think term limits are a good thing. And that uh, I think some of that is related to um just in general, how unhappy most Michiganders, most Americans are with how government works, there is this attitude that, well, yeah, you know, we should, uh, the, what's the the epigram about, you know, politicians should be changed like diapers yeah, or whatever, yeah. well, um, which is a funny line. Yes, it is. But um, at the same time, in order to make some sort of change to term limits, the I, I think most people who work in and around government, whether they're elected officials or not, are more or less sold on the idea that term limits have been bad. But the public's not sold, and I'm not sure how you make that sale.
1: But the public's not sold on it yet. But if you'd ask the public about any other aspect of a of a job, mm-hmm. and say, would you would you completely disqualify an employee after six years and say that they're irrelevant and they they don't know anything anymore, they're they're out of touch? They right. say no, they're just getting their legs under them. Absolutely, They're just learning that experience mm-hmm. and and relationships and and what it takes to do the job. Yeah. but in this case, uh, experience is seen as a as a disqualifier. So we, I understand the concept of saying I want somebody just like me there. I want the average Joe, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's something to be said for experience. Absolutely, I think when that's I, right. With all due respect to our legislators, when I see somebody in their young twenties. Mm-hmm. uh making these kind of decisions this magnitude, and they haven't fully lived life themselves yet. I'd like somebody well, and I was in my forties, but I'd prefer somebody who's made mistakes in life and who's uh, yeah. run a business or even had problems and and you know uh even you learn more from your mistakes than your successes absolutely, so if you've had a failed business, uh you've learned from that, you know mm-hmm. what it takes if you've had a failed marriage. You, you know what it takes to keep a relationship together. Mm-hmm. But if you haven't done any of that yet, then and you're going to make the decisions for the rest of the 10 million of us, I would rather see a little more maturity.
0: I think that's fair. I uh, The thing I always come back to with some of these younger lawmakers, because I think you're right, we do see a lot more young people in the legislature, is, and look, I was a late bloomer. But I think about what I was doing oh, when I was the age buddy. of those lawmakers. And that's frankly, kind of frightening. I mean, th- th- those of our listeners who, who know me at all well know that, yeah, my early to mid 20s, I wasn't exactly covering myself in glory, um, <laughs> you yeah. know, um, and so I do worry about that a little bit that, you know, I I thought I knew a lot when I was in my early 20s and objectively 20 years later, looking back, I knew a whole lot less yeah. than I thought I did. Yeah,
1: and sometimes the, the older I get, the less I know. Yeah. I, you know, you, you don't know what you don't know at that age. Absolutely. So, yeah, Yeah. I, I wish them well, but I I don't like the fact that a state legislator is a position they're taking to build a resume. Yeah, I think it should be at the end of a career. Yeah, not at the beginning. That that
0: sounds right to me, and that's, um you know, I, I do think that has been one thing with term limits is, you know, you do see a sort of bifurcation, right, where you get a lot more young people, yeah. and then you do get some older folks who are, they wouldn't have considered doing something like that, you know, during their prime earning years, right. because there is that six-year window, um, and then you're gone, and you got to find something else, um, so folks that don't run when they're young I, it seems like are more likely to do it when they're getting to be yes. retirement age. Right. And, okay, I'll, I'll do, you know, two to six years of this and then ride off into the sunset. Exactly. And that seems better to me than, you know, I mean, I, I haven't been in my 60s yet, but I've been in my
1: 20s. And, well, I, I mean, as we're talking, I'm thinking <laughs> your listeners are going to think that I must be about 100 years old because <laughs> I sound like an old man talking here. And, uh, you know, frankly, I'm, I'm a grandpa now, so I, sure, I've got yeah. a little different perspective. So,
0: yeah. So, you know, I alluded to this earlier. Most Americans, most Michiganders are pretty unhappy with how their government works. What do you feel like citizens aren't getting from their elected officials, from their governing institutions that's leading to that?
1: Well, that's hard. Um, I, I'm frustrated with the cynicism that I see in politics. I think uh, it's this hyper-partisanship that people are finally starting to talk about and mm-hmm. recognize. This should not necessarily always be a team sport where it's my side against your side absolutely and it's only a good idea if if my if my team comes up with it right um and i've seen that this year i've seen it in past years where we have to reinvent the wheel when our next, uh, another group of freshmen come in mm-hmm. we have to restudy something uh why can't we take roads are a good example but dozens of reports that have been done for, for years and rely on those to say, okay, now maybe this is where we have to rely on the experts. I think of Rick Olson and Roy Schmidt that did a comprehensive report on transportation back when I was in the legislature. Mm -hmm. And if you knew Rick Olson, you knew it was a comprehensive report because the guy was
0: comprehensive is what Rick did. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Exactly. (laughs) So, uh, it didn't go anywhere when we were there, but now we've forgotten that who Rick Olson is right. And that report should be in front and center of every freshman rather than take six months to reinvent the wheel. Yeah. So I think we need more bipartisanship. My class tried to achieve that back in 2009 and 10. Mm -hmm. Uh, We need to acknowledge that sometimes the other side uh, has good ideas Mm -hmm. and we need to give them credit for it. And we need to be able to work together. The one thing I I figured out here a few years in, because I came from the most Republican conservative county in the state of Michigan. Yeah. And uh, probably the second most Republican district in the Mm -hmm. state of Michigan. So I came in in with a little chip on my shoulder, too, about what Democrats were and what, what we as Republicans were. And I realize that there's some very good people on both sides of the aisle. Mm -hmm. And that 90% of the people that run for office truly are here for the right reason. And sometimes the only difference between Republicans and Democrats are where they were raised, what their district is, and how their parents voted. Yeah. But we believe fundamentally in a lot of the same things. Yeah. It's just a matter of how to get there. And who your constituents may be and, and respecting the process and sometimes over-relying on partisanship. Yeah. So, you know, the Center for Michigan has, has held uh, sessions and done things on, on bipartisanship. And I wish we could have more experiments like that of getting Democrats and Republicans in the same room mm-hmm. to find out who they are as people. I mean, you and I started off as Republican and Democrat, Uh Uh, you know, 10 years ago, I probably would have said, oh, I'm right. I can't Mm -hmm. talk to Adrian. Right. Yeah. And now we're friends. Yeah. So uh, as you get to know people and build relationships, those walls start to come down a little bit. Yeah. That's the other problem with term limits is by the time you realize it and start building those relationships and working together, you're gone.
0: I think that's right. Um, you know, the I, I definitely think that's right. And you said something interesting that I, I've found to be a really good approach just in general, especially when you're dealing with really difficult issues, you know, some of the social issues that, you know, the two tribes fight about the most, mm-hmm. that sort of thing, is sort of taking a step back, sometimes several steps back, to a point where we can agree on some sort of principle. You know, we might not be able to get all the way down the road together but we can at least back up to a point where we're starting with the same basic principle yes. and then we can argue like hell about all the particulars of realizing that principle. Um, and that to a certain extent is, um, you know, what the country's supposed to be all about exactly. um, is, you know, we're, we're going to fight like hell, but you know, we do hold these truths to be
1: self-evident
0: um, and we start from there yes. and then we can get to fighting.
1: And part of the problem in a partisan Atmosphere is that. Um, oh, you know Chuck Moss used to say, "The perfect is the enemy of the good." Is that if it's not a complete win, then mm-hmm. that I'm not willing to to give in. Yeah, and I, I can't let an expression that kept coming up is it's slippery slope. Right. You know, if we give them that, they're mm-hmm. going to come back. Well, certainly there's some truth in that, but you got to have room for compromise, and mm-hmm. you got to trust the next class to say. That's a bridge too far. Okay, we we compromised mm-hmm. over here, but now you're crossing the line. Yeah, and uh, you know the pro life movement. The pro life movement is something that has been ingrained into me since I was since Roe v. Wade. Right. Because I'm I, I'm older than Roe v. Wade, hmm. uh, so I grew up with it. I grew up when that happened, realizing that life begins at conception, and I believe that, and I believe that abortion is fundamentally wrong. Now there are places where I think we can go with the other side to say we don't want people having abortions. So how do we help them? How do we help single moms? How do we help people that have, you know, have crises in their lives? I think Mm -hmm. we as a Christian and as a Republican, we need to do those kind of things. We need to reach out to, to people in a broader way. And look for those compromises
0: absolutely, and uh, I mean you literally just did the thing that I was talking about. I mean, it's possible to back up and talk about some principles that everybody can agree yeah. about without sacrificing your own principles right. um and that not only is that possible, but that's the way that we should do it. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, I think there's, um, I definitely think you're right about that and about the, uh, the sort of hyper partisanship. Um, and there's a chicken and the egg problem there in that, um, the public seems to consume a lot of that hyper partisanship, you know, through cable news and that sort of thing. Um, you know, there's, uh, the, the news process has sort of turned more into entertainment than, um, being informative. Um, but the, you know, I, I always, uh, turn the expression that you know unfortunately politics has gotten to the point where it's not that different from the gangs in my old neighborhood right <laughs> you're either on the red team or the blue team exactly. which bandana is sticking out of your back pocket yeah and that's not how it's supposed to work at all like no. we're we're supposed to fight like hell about stuff but it, um politics um within our own country is not supposed to be a blood sport
1: exactly yeah it's, yeah and i don't i did maybe you have an answer how do we go back how do we how do we stop the partisanship, and how do we find the maturity to say, you know what, I don't care what the news, how they sell this to the public, I'm going to work together with people?
0: Yeah, I think uh, really it does start at a personal level, right? Um, It's really easy to get caught up in the red team versus the blue team stuff if you're thinking about every single thing from a big sort of macro level. Um, I think some of this is you just having conversations like this, being willing to reach out to people who are different than you and go grab a cup of coffee or a beer and be okay with the idea that you're not going to agree with this person about every single thing. But that doesn't mean that they're growing horns out of their head. Um, And it's got to start at a personal
1: level. But I've heard that, you know, the, the, okay, let's go have a coffee or let's go have a beer. But there's this attitude, I think, that uh, between eight to five, when I punch in the clock, mm-hmm. then we're, then we're fighting mm-hmm. and at five o'clock we punch out and then we can go have the beer. I mm. don't agree with that. Yeah. We ought to be able to cooperate and work together during the work day as well. Mm-hmm. And we ought to be able to compromise. And every time somebody puts a mic in your face to mm-hmm. get a comment, it doesn't have to be a snipe against the other side. Yeah. And I see that in MERS. I see that. I hear it on the radio. Mm-hmm. Um, I listen to both Fox and NPR. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just get so fed up with the, the sniping back and forth. And I mm-hmm. think to myself, every time somebody makes a comment, it's like, boy, you could have said that in a different way because yeah. I know you don't really mean it, but they feel like they have to set, set that line in the sand. And, and, and yeah,
0: I think some of it is that you, and this is, you know, some of this is on a personal level and some of it's on a professional level too. And it's, um, It's something we've gotten bad at as a society. You've got to approach people with a certain amount of um, charity. Um, you know, and, a certain, uh, and that's, um, especially people that are different from you or that you disagree with. The example I always use is like, I, I I'm, I'm a mixed race guy. So I have a very different perspective on this. Um, having been, you know, having a sort of foot in both camps for lack of a better term. The example I always use is, you know, if you're a white fellow who lives in a very, very rural area of Michigan, Um, And your only experience of black people is what you see on TV and in Mm -hmm. the movies. I totally understand why you're scared of us. It's a scary picture, um, you know, and so some of that really does have to happen at a personal level, whether it's at the office or it's going out for coffee is to push your own boundaries a little bit. And, yeah. you know, the that that same uh, white fellow in, you know, Pig's Knuckle Township, um, if he goes out and, you know, actually meets some black folks, he's going to figure out pretty quick they're not that different from him. You know, most exactly. of us still go to church on Sundays. You know, most of us are just trying to earn a good living and raise a family family and all those same things. Well, and you don't know that until you actually go experience those people, the movies and the TV and the news aren't going to tell you that.
1: Right. Well, remember, I'm from Holland. Right. So uh, literally the first time I ever met a black person was when I went to college. Yeah. Uh, it's just the reality of that That's right. 1979 going off to the university. And uh, OK, yeah. here we go. <laughs> here we go. Um, that next experience, because I stayed in Holland after college, was the legislature Yeah, of getting to know people that weren't raised like me, were raised in a different area, didn't look like me, didn't think like me, and uh, totally different backgrounds. And what I found is, oh, they're not that much different than me.
0: Right. I mean, the uh, you, you and um, now Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib well, were a great good, example uh, of that um, in the legislature. You know, nice Dutch Christian reform yeah. Joe Haviman <laughs> and Rashida Tlaib, the Muslim member from southwest Detroit, yeah. struck up a hell of a friendship in the legislature. And I don't think that that's the sort of thing most people expect, but it's exactly the sort of thing that we need socially.
1: Yeah, uh, it, it's funny because a lot of my Republican colleagues still scratch their head on that one and say, "How did you ever get to be friends with her?" But Rashida and I had that relationship where she would literally cuss me out mm-hmm. one day, tell me how evil I am and mm-hmm. why, why I'm wrong, and the next day uh, we'd come to an agreement on something, and she'd give me a hug and say, "Joe, you're the best." You right. know, and uh, I don't see her anymore, obviously, sure. and I. I hate the rhetoric that I see yeah. her put out. Mm-hmm. I get her emails asking for donations. Yeah. That's not <laughs> um but I love to read them. I know a different Rashida than what than the stuff I'm reading.
0: Yeah. That's right. And it's um Well, it's, it's what you brought up earlier, right? Like, you know, we can kick the crap out of each other and then, you know, I mean, Rashida doesn't drink, but you know, you can share pictures of the grandbabies and, you know, yeah, that's, that's how it's supposed to work. Um, and that's,
1: yeah, I have a, I have a little spot in my basement. My wife is designated, okay, you can keep your stuff here. Yeah, <laughs> sounds <laughs> uh, right. It's uh, it's my wall of fame, if you will, from yeah. the legislature. And one of the pictures I have is me in my suit on the floor of the house uh, during session, uh, laying down, playing with Rashida's youngest. Yeah, and he's I don't know, he's probably a year old. Yeah. And uh, she gave me that as a gift. Mm-hmm. Uh framed when we left and uh, you know, it's that's a, that's always going to be a, a really cool relationship between us. Right. But like I said, I mean maybe once a year we'll exchange an email or something. And sure. That's it. Sure. But I'm I'm a better person for having known her and for knowing people uh, from all over the state that are different than me
0: yeah absolutely and that's um yeah i i think that we could uh, all of us just like as americans need to need to push our boundaries a little bit and and do more of that um intentionally and i think that's part of how we fix what's wrong with our politics so lincoln
1: called it the better angels of our nature yeah and I, I love that phrase i just picked up a book uh the other day and that is the the front mm-hmm. forward is yeah. that quote from lincoln mm-hmm. and you know uh, yeah, the country was in far worse shape because we were going to war, mm-hmm. and that's why he he made that quote. He was imploring people to use the better angels of their nature. We are not friends. We are not enemies. We are friends. We right. must be friends. Yeah, uh, and hopefully our country can find its way to there where we say, okay, let's lay down arms for a minute and figure out what we have in common and not what our differences are.
0: Yeah, I think that I think that's exactly right. We spend way too much time in this country talking about what makes us different from one another. Yes. And look, those, th- there are definitely differences between us and we can talk about those. We can celebrate those. We can argue about them. But fundamentally, we're all human beings and we're about ninety nine and a half percent the same. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so one of your key priorities as a lawmaker was corrections reform. Um didn't finally get it passed until you were out of office, but the legislature ultimately adopted your parole reform. What do you see as the next big reform Michigan needs to make in the correction space?
1: Well, I think the Holy Grail, and I think it will happen eventually, um, is going to be sentencing reform. Yeah, but the thing, things that I'm so proud of, and you're, I was, I was a little, I was about five years ahead of my time on mm-hmm. that issue, um, so we didn't get much done in our term. Mm-hmm. But I was proud to see uh, the parole reform issue get done. The thing I worked on the hardest was creating a narrative about jails. Mm -hmm. So we turn over about 10,000 prisoners a year out of our Department of Corrections. Mm -hmm. And our population is going down slightly now. It mm-hmm. took a big dip from 2006, I think was our high water mark. Yep. Um, but it's only going to go down incrementally at this point mm-hmm. because we keep putting more people in. So my premise was back in 2014 is we need to start working at the jail level, the probation level, and then back it up to the juvenile delinquents and then get into our schools and push the problem to the youngest people we can find. The earliest when people start having a problem, that's gonna end up being a corrections issue, mm-hmm. and starve a de- our Department of Corrections from having new people. Yeah, I, I didn't get anywhere. I didn't even create the narrative to the extent that I wanted to. But now you're seeing it happen, and yeah. prosecutors and sheriffs have bought in. They realize, and if it's their idea, great. Mm-hmm. I don't care whose idea it is. Yep. Uh, but the governor's appointed this task force. Pew uh, Research is in, Mm -hmm. I talk to them maybe once a month or so, and they're talking about the jail system. They're talking about getting to people earlier. Mm -hmm. That's the big big holy grail now that we need to focus on our jails because if we can correct behavior earlier, we're going to give people their lives back earlier. We're Mm -hmm. going to have safer streets And we're going to have a smaller, less expensive Department of Corrections. And that money should be reinvested right back to the counties, Hmm. right back to the schools, and that's the way we're going to have a safer community.
0: I, I think you're exactly right about that. I remember from my days as a lobbyist, um, one of the, the, the first client I went out and got for the firm was a juvenile justice facility in Pennsylvania. And, you know, the issue we were working for them isn't really important. But I remember going there with a, um, a former senator and meeting with, um, you know, the staff at this place. It's actually the oldest juvenile justice facility in the country and meeting with some of these kids and just seeing the difference that was made in these kids' lives from a real intervention at an educational level, at a social level. And these are kids who had done some bad things. Um, you know, a couple of them had killed people. A lot of them had been selling drugs, attempted murder, right. home invasions, that sort of thing. And seeing some of those young men come out of there with, you know, um, high school diplomas or at a minimum a GDE and a trade certificate yeah. and going on and getting good paying jobs fresh out of a juvenile justice facility. And building lives for themselves—that's really remarkable. And each one of those kids that does that is a kid that not only is he not going into the Department of Corrections, he's paying taxes. He's probably raising a family, um, and hopefully,
1: he's raising a family of kids that aren't going to go down the same path that he started on. It's it's uh, that's an an important point. By saving that kid and saving him from a life of crime himself, Mm -hmm. we're cutting we're breaking the cycle. Yeah. It's his kids. Right. That we're we're saving as well. It's mm-hmm. the, you know the sins of the father and third and fourth generation. Uh-huh. That's what we want to break. Right. So it 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 helps everyone and don't don't ever let somebody tell you that we're doing something for them, you know, and we're giving them more than they deserve or coddling criminals no it's about safety for all of us and Mm -hmm. it's about a less expensive government and a smaller government and more freedom i'm proud of where the legislature's going they need to have the courage to keep it up Mm -hmm. i'm also proud of the way the churches are starting to realize that they have a responsibility too yeah because we can't even a person who's in prison for life who's done the most heinous kind of crimes has value they're god's children too And we can't forget about them.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're a Protestant. I'm a Catholic, but I think that's one thing we definitely agree about um, is um, you don't throw people away, even people who've done the very worst things that we know we can never let out of prison because they're dangerous. You still don't throw people away. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, that's, uh, yeah, I, I think that's great. Um, since leaving office, you've been doing governmental relations work for Hope Network. Um, so tell our listeners about Hope Network and what kind of things you're advocating for in, in your role there.
1: Sure. Hope Network is an organization that started um, almost 60 years ago, I believe, no, 55-ish. And we we help people with disabilities. We mm-hmm. were formed uh, as an offshoot of Pine Rest uh, Christian Hospital years ago, I believe back in the 60s. And... Uh, our fundamental role is to help people with disabilities. Mm-hmm. We've grown tremendously over the past few years to where we're in every county in the state. We're on the east side. We're up in the UP now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we service people from every county, and uh, we help people, almost like 25,000 people. That's around great in the state. Yeah. Uh, so we're a big organization. We're very diverse, and we've got our hands in. Corrections reform and Mm -hmm. uh, getting people back to work when they come out of prison Uh, we help people with intellectual disabilities we help people with injuries brain injuries Mm -hmm. uh, rehab centers and uh, and and reading we're in our schools teaching Mm -hmm. doing reading core programs with AmeriCorps volunteers. Oh, so really? we're a bigger, div- more diverse group than we were, but our fundamental role is to help people achieve their greatest level of independence, and that goes to kind of what we were talking about before. Is, sure. Uh, you know, we use government funding, mm-hmm. obviously, in some, in a lot of our programs, but we want to create a system where maybe somebody can't reach the levels that you and I have, but mm-hmm. we want to get them to a level that they're more independent where they are. They want their greatest level of independence possible. And mm-hmm. there, there again, what we we're talking about is every human life has value. They need to be valued and they need it to be respected. Mm-hmm. And we think we do that at Hope Network.
0: Yeah. That's very, very cool stuff. So, and you've been advocating for them in, is it just in Lansing or are you doing D.C. work as well? Uh, we, do, we do a little bit in D.C., but uh,
1: most of my work here is right here in Lansing.
0: Yeah. So you're uh, you're like a good guy lobbyist
1: now. Well, and I, you know, <laughs> it's funny when you call yourself a lobbyist, people go, oh. Uh, yeah. But uh, I, I say, well, you know, we work for a Christian-based nonprofit that helps people with disabilities. And then it's like, oh. Okay. Oh, well, that's yeah. okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, are, right. I guess you're one of the good guys. Right. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Very cool. So, what are things that people can do to um, you know, to help Hope Network achieve its mission in their own community? Are there volunteer opportunities, ways that, you know, your average Joe can get involved with what Hope Network does?
1: Uh yeah, if I take I field calls all the time from somebody who may know me but they don't know they don't know how to access Hope Network because we are large. Mm-hmm. So they'll call me out of the blue and then I'm the navigator somewhat to say, okay, let me put you in touch with someone. Mm-hmm. So if you have somebody in, um, in your life that is not receiving the proper funding or can't access a certain service, uh, you know, you can call our, our general line, mm-hmm. you know, 616-301-8000 or, <laughs> or just find me and, uh, I, it turns out that's what I do because yeah. people, people know me in Lansing, people know me in uh, certainly in West Michigan, and uh, I find myself doing that quite often. Yeah. Uh, but I was talking with somebody about this, I believe, on the golf course last week, on the difference how we treat people with disabilities from when you and I grew up or certainly yeah. when I grew up. If you had a child with a disability or if you knew someone with a disability, you shied away from that person. I mean, they were different. Mm-hmm. You didn't understand it. You were uncomfortable with them and you just tended to shy away. They right. weren't in school with us. Right Now many schools have mainstreamed kids as best they can mm-hmm. uh, and we're, we're much more welcoming and accepting of people that are different than us mm-hmm. and that's healthy. And one of, one of the things we do at Hope Network is we try to place people. With intellectual disabilities in jobs that they can do, and uh, this trend has started. Uh, it started years ago, but it's gotten it's gotten much better because of our unemployment rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we need workers at every level. Book written not long ago, a couple of years ago, from a gentleman from Walgreens who has an autistic child, an adult child, and uh, that book has kind of caught on. And the name of it is uh, No Greatness Without Goodness. Yeah. And he pushes the inclusion of people with disabilities in our workforce and how they did set up a warehouse distribution center that caters to people with disabilities mm-hmm. at Walgreens. And it's become a, a kind of a, a flagship for other companies to follow. Yeah. So we've come a long way in the past few decades, and I've had the privilege for four and a half years to learn this industry, to learn about disabilities, to learn about how government funding works with it, but also just uh, how we care for people.
0: Yeah. So if folks have got, um, you know, folks that they know of who maybe aren't getting the services that they should or just as importantly, if you own a business or manage a business, you're an employer um, and you want to be able to tap into this pool of talented folks um, to help people with disabilities, um, you know, achieve independence and live their best lives and and get some damn fine employees out of it in the bargain. um, Check out the folks at Hope Network. They're doing great work. And, um, you know, you can you can be part of that solution of, you know, people that have got differences you know getting together to uh to make our communities and our country better off so we always like to end our ticket splitters <laughs> podcast with uh war stories from our guests you know politics is frequently hilarious it's almost always bizarre um you have any amusing or strange war stories from public service or the campaign trail that you can share with our listeners
1: you know everybody has a door-to-door story um, of people that they've met and uh, you know most of mine are door- to door being chased by goats Goats. Goats. Uh, <laughs> up north, I think I was knocking doors for Ray Franz years ago. <laughs> and uh, it, it was it was a lower-end home sure. in the woods. Yeah. And uh, typically, you're used to a dog coming around. Yeah, I've been chased it, by dogs. Yeah, yeah, everybody's got a dog story. But uh, we literally had, and I had some young intern with me, two large goats run around the house and just meet us at the front door. <laughs> and, and they were... I mean, nothing happened, but it was just such a shocker to see these very large goats come around the door. So that that's one. Um, you know, I've had more than once, but I remember running as a county commissioner. This is 15, 20 years ago. Uh, a couple, elderly couple in a condominium brought me in and uh, they they said, well, Joe, you know, we want to sit down and pray with you. Yeah. And I've had that more than once. But this couple was special and I bumped into them once in a blue moon. Now they showed up at my church once. They're just a special couple that and maybe that's a West Michigan thing, but it was just it was cool. So, yeah. Uh, why wouldn't I do that? Yes, I've got a few I got a lot more doors to knock. But sure. Uh, those opportunities are, are pretty special. Yeah. The funniest thing that happened last summer in our Senate campaign uh, that I kid my wife about is, you know, how it, you prep for parades and your, own, your holidays, you're getting ready for parades. And with parades, you got to buy candy. Yeah. So uh, we usually would go to Meyer or go to um, Walmart and, you know, buy the cheapest, biggest boxes you can. Mm-hmm. Well, Kim got online and she found 5,000 pieces of gum <laughs> for just dirt. Yeah. And she, so she bought me. she said at that price I'm going to buy like four boxes 5,000 pieces it's fantastic I mean it's well the boxes came yeah and she didn't read the fine print oh boy so we ended up with small boxes of about 10 inch by 10 inch of unpacked gum that was meant for a gumball machine oh boy so I think they're still upstairs they're still <laughs> like 20,000 pieces of green gum <laughs> That you certainly can't throw gum at people with no wrapping around. Right. Yeah. There they sit. They don't know what to do. It. So that was kind of a, kind of a comical thing that happened, but uh, campaigning is, uh, you know, it's a great experience. It's stressful. And as you know, and it takes a lot out of it, out of you. And, uh, but it's a, it's a, you really get to know yourself well, mm-hmm. what you're good at and what you're not good at. And it gets you out of your comfort zone. Yeah. And, uh uh, it's everybody should participate somehow in doing that because it, it's a cool experience.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think everybody should get out and knock doors for somebody at least yeah, once. Um, exactly. If for no other reason, it's a great excuse to go out and meet your neighbors.
1: Yeah, and I lost about 20 pounds last year. Well, that's also, <laughs> especially you know you
0: get into middle age like me and you know, any excuse to get out and walk exactly. and uh, burn a few calories is probably good as well. I think yeah. that's a great place for us to end the podcast today. I want to thank my guest, Joe Haviman, for joining us on ticket splitters and we'll talk to you all in two weeks.